Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, depending on when you tune in. And you, my fellow degenerate gambler, are tuned in to another installment of Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, here again to break down all things CFL and betting for you. The podcast is coming off by week, so our look back at the previous week's action will be more of a general comment on the last two weeks. And then, as usual, we'll get to breaking down the four games we have on tap this week. If you want to get in touch with me, fire off an email to cflbettingpodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for all your subscribes, likes, and moral support. All right, we'll start with the three teams not involved in any traditional Labor Day rivalry games, they being Ottawa, Montreal, and BC. Ottawa played twice and was unfortunately crushed both times in somewhat similar fashion, first by Montreal, then by BC. We saw Dominic Davis inserted in the second quarter of the Montreal game. He would subsequently start against the Lions. And while he is more mistake-prone than Matt Nichols, he's also a lot more dynamic, and after four weeks of futility on offense, it was definitely time to shake things up. The Red Blacks' offense undoubtedly improved under Davis. When your offensive line is a strainer, it helps to have a quarterback who can at least roll out of the pocket and potentially escape the first blitzer. But alas, the defense that had performed quite capably through four games completely fell apart these last two weeks, the losses in the secondary of Sherrod Baltimore and Abdul Kenna were going to be impactful for a team with little depth to speak of, but I was a bit surprised to see them get carved up through the air to the extent that they did, giving up an opponent's success rate of 67% over the two games. And in the case of the Montreal game, they had no answer to the run game either. The game against BC last week could have been a lot closer at halftime than it was. A missed field goal getting taken the other way and a pick six accounted for 14 second quarter points for the Lions and that put this game out of reach. But Davis and the offense looked all right in the first half in spite of minimal contribution from the run game. Second half though was a, a reversion back to the futility as they, they failed to score a single point, not really producing any drives of substance until garbage time rolled around in the fourth quarter. I'm not really sure what the next step is here for the Red Blacks. I, I see no reason to hand the ball back to Matt Nichols. And as if things couldn't get any worse, uh, Devontae Dedman left last game early, and he has been placed on the one-game injured list. All I've got to say is ouch when it comes to the state of this roster right now. On the other side of the coin, BC and especially Montreal used this as a get-right opportunity. The Lions' offense had yet to really play up to their potential, but coming off a bye week, they took no prisoners. Run game still wasn't strong, but it didn't need to be here with Mike Riley playing pitch and catch with several different receivers, almost 70% success rate for that unit. The Alouettes, who will play three more games against Ottawa in this season of bizarre scheduling, finally put together a full 60 minutes. Just how meaningful a blowout over the league's worst team is remains to be seen, but the Owls couldn't afford a second straight clunker within the division, and before going on by, they cruised to victory. On both the arm of Vernon Adams, he tagged them for five explosives in the air, and the legs of you know both Adams, I guess, and, and William Stanback, of course, 16 successful rushes on 23 attempts overall. That's about double what would still be considered a decent game in this era. As it happens, the Lions and the Alouettes will now face each other as this little round robin of sorts will conclude. Uh, you know, more on that one in a little bit. 
In the traditional Labor Day games, we saw Hamilton and Toronto trade wins. Not too surprising, but I think you've got to be feeling a little better with the current situation if you're the Argonauts, who now hold first place in the Eastern Division at 3-2. and two. The Ticats defense showed up big at Tim Hortons Field on Labor Day. They eventually chased Nick Arbuckle from that game, and they found the end zone in the fourth quarter themselves to pretty much cement this game. You know, they, they completely stuffed the run. They held Toronto to just 4 out of 12 success rate. Offensively, Hamilton came alive somewhat. The ground game was consistently efficient, grading out at 74%, and Dane Evans managed to hit on just enough deep balls to overcome a fairly pedestrian 46% success rate in the passing game. Even special teams got in on the action with Frankie Williams finding the end zone on a punt return that broke that game open in the third quarter. And those teams went at it again four days later. Toronto managed to escape with a 17-16 victory after Hamilton kicker Michael Domagala blew an extra point that would have tied the game late. This game was a lot closer, though, on the scoreboard than it really ought to have been. And the biggest difference game to game was undoubtedly the run games of both teams. After carrying an average of 18 times in the two wins leading into this game, the Ticats only elected to run the ball seven times uh, in this one. I, I found that very surprising, considering the success they'd had coming in, particularly with the depth they have at this position. They used a rotation of backs in the first game, so fatigue shouldn't have been a significant factor, even with the short turnaround. Now, I'll point out that Hamilton likes to run a lot of jet sweeps with receivers getting those carries, so it's not as if they lined up in an eye formation 15 times in the previous game, but this offensive line is continuing to struggle mightily in pass protection, and inviting pressure with an 84% pass play selection rate isn't going to help that. The Argonauts, who were running into a brick wall on every carry on Monday, found new life on Friday, 71% success rate on the ground in that one. And that's more in line with what we've seen out of them so far this year. Nick Arbuckle didn't do a ton of damage against the Hamilton defense. A single pass of 20 yards was his longest completion of the night, and he threw a pick in the end zone that took points off the board. But through 58 minutes, it looked like a, a modest but efficient effort was going to be enough to get the job done. But my, oh my, what a horrible pick to throw inside the three-minute warning on your own side of the field with a seven-point lead. That's one glaring error I'm sure he'd like to have back, and it gave Hamilton a chance to steal this game with David Watford coming in at quarterback for Dane Evans after the latter was injured in the final quarter. Uh, Watford managed to get the Cats into the end zone to cut the deficit to one. Orlando Steinauer decided to play it safe and kick the convert. Of course, that backfired when his kicker pushed it wide. You know, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, but I would argue that given the struggles of Domigala so far this year, the smarter play would have been going for the two points in the win, or, you know, at least the lead late. Uh, you know, realistically, the Hamilton offense had done next to nothing all game, and yet they found themselves three yards away from taking the lead with a minute or so left. And, you know, that's a golden chance to steal a win passed up, in my opinion. But in fairness, I think most coaches probably would have made the same call. Moving on, the Saskatchewan-Winnipeg set, the Labor Day weekend game, went more or less how I anticipated in terms of the gameplay and the, so and the style. We saw a number of turnovers, we saw some fairly aggressive deep balls thrown, but it just did not add up to points on the scoreboard, unfortunately, as the over in this game became the first best bet of the weekend to come up short. 
Metrically, this game was a bit of an outlier in the sense that the Riders executed pretty well on first down, but the Winnipeg defense stands tall again, holding Cody Fajardo and the Riders offense to a pathetic 28% conversion rate on second down. That will not get the job done. And indeed, the Riders failed to score a point in the second half of this game. That marked the second time in four home games that this offense was essentially shut out after halftime. And for those that remember Jason Moss as the head coach in Edmonton, that was not an uncommon trait for his offenses. Zach Caleros in the Bomber offense with another on-brand performance. They ran Andrew Harris steadily. The Riders defense actually did a pretty good job of limiting the damage, only surrendering a 10% explosive run rate to the league's most reliable back. But as we've seen throughout this season, Caleros managed to sprinkle in chunk plays through the air at regular intervals to eventually get Winnipeg across the finish line north of 20 points, and they do not lose often when that occurs. With just their second Labor Day win in 17 years, the Bombers went home for the Banjo Bowl in the rare position of being able to sweep this season series and put themselves into the driver's seat for first place in the West, and indeed they capitalized, finding the end zone five times. That is a bonanza by CFL in 2021 standards, but this game was actually very tight throughout the first half. Problems at the kicker position aside, the Bombers managed to head into halftime with a 12-9 lead. And they got a bit lucky here, I thought, with a pair of Rough Riders getting ejected late in the first half as the result of a scrum in which I would say Andrew Harris probably appeared to be the guiltiest party. I, I sensed that the officials would not be willing to kick Harris out of the game at home in the Banjo Bowl with 30,000 fans in attendance. But if you let Harris stay in the game there, which I'm fine with, I, I don't think you can justify kicking out both those Saskatchewan guys. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a blunder from the officials there, I would say. But in the in the end, the Riders failed to score a single point in the second half for the second game in a row. And they lose Cody Fajardo in the process, his status for the upcoming game this week uncertain at the moment. Saskatchewan actually moved the ball a lot more effectively in this game than the first game, but negative plays were there undoing. Four sacks surrendered to go along with a pick. William Powell was the bright spot here with a nice outing. Strong running on first downs gave the Riders relatively few second and long situations to deal with, but when it's all said and done, just too much heat from that Bombers defensive line that is clearly the class of the CFL right now. And that's a big reason why they're now sitting pretty at 5-1 and one in the West. The Riders suddenly reeling a little bit at 3-2. and two. And we saw another string of Labor Day dominance interrupted when the Elks, fresh off their battle with COVID, went into Calgary and looked much better than anyone, including myself, could have anticipated. They win for the first time on Labor Day in a decade, and suddenly it looked like Trevor Harris had found the fountain of youth. 44 dropbacks in that game and a 57% success rate overall. James Wilder didn't see a ton of use, but managed to bust a crucial 29-yard run mid-fourth quarter. That turned momentum back at Edmonton's favor after Calgary battled back from an early two-score hole. Jake Mayer had another pretty good showing himself in a losing effort, completing 15 passes of at least 10 yards. This game for me was kind of marred by a handful of bad calls both ways. Officiating has always been an adventure in this league, but... Honestly, I think this year has gone pretty well so far, aside from the Al Bradbury crew, who has been consistently awful, and they were again in this game. Biggest surprise for me, other than just how cohesive the Elks offense looked after 18 days on the sidelines, was the lack of a run game from Calgary. 
This was an offense that came into this game averaging 18 carries per game, well over 50% success rate on those carries, and they only saw fit to run nine times here. You know, it wasn't even a case of Edmonton stuffing the run, more so Calgary just elected to pass heavily here. And while they did move the ball well in spurts, they put themselves into a lot of second and long situations with incompletes, and Edmonton has defended the pass very well in those situations. But it seems no team this year has truly put together three strong games in a row. You know, arguments can be made for Winnipeg, I guess. But, you know, Edmonton keeps that pattern going with a lousy performance in the rematch on Friday. And despite the final score, I really can't say I was all that impressed with what Calgary had to offer in this one either, at least on the offensive side of the ball. Bo Levi Mitchell was back on the field. And while normally it's a good thing to say a star quarterback picked up right where he left off when returning from injury, in this case, he looked a lot like the player we saw in the first two games of the season, which was not very good. An extremely slow start, which maybe wasn't unexpected, but I was surprised by just how inaccurate some of those balls were. Overall, Calgary turns in just a 36% success rate passing. That seldom wins a football game, but when your opponent can only manage a 31% success rate themselves, it might just get the job done, and that's what happened here. I thought some of the coaching decisions, particularly clock management, was questionable for both teams, and I really can't fathom Edmonton deciding to pass on 80% of their snaps in this game, a game in which Trevor Harris was getting buried by the pass rush on, on just about every possession. Six sacks and a forced fumble, along with an interception for the Stampeders' defense, most of that damage done in the second half. In spite of an excellent 62% defensive success rate and a pick six, the Elks defense still wasn't able to walk away with a victory thanks to that putrid offensive showing. And while I can somewhat understand the decision to part with offensive lineman Jacob Ruby under the circumstances, yeah, having to move Kyle Sachs lid to the interior and putting a CFL newcomer in DeAndre Wesley at the left tackle position, has led to an underperforming offensive line, and if if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, the five guys up front will make or break your offense much more than they're often given credit for, be it good or bad. What this Stampeders win does do is tighten up the West Division standings. At this point, Winnipeg hosting a playoff game would appear to be the only near certainty, but beyond that, you've got four teams all jockeying for playoff positions. Week 7 kicks off on Friday evening with Calgary visiting Hamilton in the first game of a doubleheader. The home side is favored by 2.5 to 3 points at the moment, while the total is sitting around 43.5. Injury report. The revolving door to the infirmary ward in Steeltown seems to be continuing, and for the sixth consecutive game, we're not going to see this roster anywhere near full strength. Dane Evans went down last week against Toronto. He looked to be in considerable discomfort on the sidelines, and indeed, he's out four to six weeks with an oblique injury. Presumably, the Ticats will be handing the ball back to Jeremiah Masoli, but remember now that he's also been limited in practice over the last three weeks dealing with rib and elbow in injuries, and that has remained the case this week, so it's possible we will see David Watford under center. Brandon Banks, he's still out, and... Uh, uh, Ted Laurent looks like he's uh, he's been in and out of the lineup all year. Uh, he is questionable for this game. We can add running back Sean Thomas Erlington to the list of the wounded. He's doubtful for this one. And Siante Evans, defensive back, remains questionable. 
More positively, Braylon Addison and Devere Posey, neither of whom have played a game yet this year. Uh, they were at least limited participants in practice this week. Neither of them are going to be in the lineup for this game, but their returns at least do seem close. The news for Calgary is uh, you know, less negative, but still some notables will be absent. Linebacker Corey Greenwood, defensive back Jonathan Moxie, not available for this one, and receiver Herji Mayala also out. Josh Huff will be a game-time decision. So the quarterback position is naturally going to get a lot of focus regardless, but these teams in particular have both had a bit of an adventurous season in that department up to this point. It would be premature to use the word quarterback controversy in regards to the Stampeders, but the reality is Bo Levi Mitchell has turned in three pretty lousy performances so far, and while playing through injury and shaking off the rust in, from it in his return last week have to be considered, Calgary is 2-4 and four in the standings and isn't in position to take a loss here. This offense moved the ball reasonably well under Jake Mayer in all three of his starts, and if, if Bo still isn't 100% or even if he is but starts off another game with four straight two and outs, you have to wonder just how long the leash is. You know, I don't think that's a decision Dave Dickinson wants to be faced with considering the success him and Bo have had over the years, but football is the most what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sport of them all, and I wouldn't be shocked to see Jake Mayer get the tap on the shoulder if things go poorly in the first half of this game. Calgary's plan of attack on offense seems to be first down or bust on just about every passing play now. And, and for a team that ran as heavily as they did in the earlier portion of the schedule, Kadeem Carey's gone pretty quiet here. We've seen the majority of offenses in the, the early going around the league doing a lot of dink and dunk type stuff. Calgary, uh, though, has been more, more preferred to push the ball downfield. Um, you know, mixed results to show for it. The, the 10 to 15 yard chunk plays are vital to moving your way down the field. Then, you know, that five to seven yard stuff isn't going to result in too many touchdown drives if you're, you're consistently starting on your own half of the field. But the Stamps have hurt themselves with the number of two and outs they've racked up the last couple games. And with just nine offensive touchdowns in six games overall, you can't really say the deep ball has paid off for them anyway. The Hamilton secondary has been consistently strong defending the pass. And in, in Frankie Williams, you've got a defensive back who's starting to get a fair bit of recognition for the job he's doing back there. I don't think attacking this backfield right out of the shoot is a particularly good idea for Calgary, and I'd expect to see a little bit more running and small ball this week. This isn't a team that's ever going to turn their quarterback into a game manager, but when the opposing offense hasn't shown much ability to move the ball themselves, there's an argument to be made that making sure you're winning the field position battle and protecting the football should be the priority here, and I would anticipate a little more involvement from the running backs than we saw against Edmonton, even if it's in the form of screens and short passes. For Hamilton, with Sean Thomas Erlington doubtful and Don Jackson still either banged up or being possibly being made a healthy scratch due to ratio reasons, we're probably going to see a bit of a shakeup at the running back position for the Ticats in this one. Two Canadians, Jackson Bennett and Malik Irons, are both listed 1-2 on the depth chart for this game. Both those guys did get some reps in, uh, well, two years ago when injuries hit the Ticats' backfield, so they are familiar with this system. Whether it's Masoli taking the snaps or Watford, though, the, the Tiger Cats really need to establish the run to take some pressure off their offensive line. Calgary's D-line found their groove last week. The old veteran Sean Lemon has been playing some very good football, and Mike Rose and Derek Wigan are making life difficult in the interior for opponents right now. 
Snap's defense hasn't been defending the deep ball very well when the pressure doesn't arrive. So if Hamilton is able to keep their quarterbacks up, right, they, they have a decent chance to move the ball here. But that's easier said than done. And this group really needs to get things uh, sorted out on the line in a hurry. All three quarterbacks on this Ticat roster have good legs. So there's no reason not to be taking advantage of that with some rollouts or, or even called quarterback keepers. Keep the defense off balance a little bit. When you've got some of your best personnel on the shelf, uh, you know that's that's when you really see what a coaching staff's made of, and they're they're going to have to get creative here while while also playing within themselves with you know guys like Banks not available to them right now. This was an offense that was you know, very difficult to contain in 2019, but going back to the same bag of tricks each week when you know the offense continues to sputter in 2021 uh, isn't cutting it and I'll I'll be interested to see if we can get a new wrinkle or two from Tommy Condell who has has a very solid reputation as as an OC so you've got Hamilton back at home they, they've been almost unbeatable at Tim Hortons field in recent years and you know and that alone is is a reason to take a close look at them anytime minus 3 or less is available but it, you know, it really is a bit of a guessing game who's going to be the starting quarterback at this point. Jeremiah Masoli, he is going to dress. That much has been confirmed, which would have you assuming he's good enough to go from the opening whistle. But we have seen time and again in this league, injured quarterbacks will still dress to fill the backup role. That's never made a ton of sense to me, but that is the situation we're faced with here. Should Masoli play, I've got some concerns about his mental state playing injured behind such a porous offensive line. Knowing you're going to take a few knocks, that tends to lead to chucking the ball prematurely to avoid hits. So I would almost say a healthy David Watford, who does have some CFL experience, would probably put them in a better position to win, depending on just how bad Masoli's injury really is. You know, but this would have me leaning in the direction of taking the points with Calgary, but... Personally, I'd like to see Bo Levi Mitchell put together a solid 60 minutes of football before backing the stamps on the road. So I, you know, I think I'll likely be sitting this game out as far as a spread play is concerned, unless we see this number push through the key number of three out to three and a half, at which point Calgary starts to look pretty enticing with how much healthier their roster is right now. Play on the total. I think is maybe a bit of a better move here. Uh, 43 and a half, that is fairly low, but for all the ups and downs these teams have had so far, the Hamilton defense has shown up every week and turned in a solid performance. And, and for Calgary, they're they're coming into this one off their, their best defensive effort of the season. And that front four has to be licking its chops going up against a struggling offensive line. The ability of Frankie Williams to break a big return does scare me a little bit here, but kick coverage is typically solid from the Stampeders and, I think if we can avoid having points scored as a direct result of, of big plays on special teams or defense, we, we should be able to sneak in under this number. Quarterback sacks, those are great for unders, and we should see a handful of those as well. So I, I do lean under here as the most appealing play available at the moment for this game. Second half of the Friday night double dip will take us back across the prairies to Regina, where the Riders will play host for the fifth time in six games in a very home-heavy first half of the schedule for them. The Toronto Argonauts come calling in a battle of three and two football clubs. We're not seeing a line at any of the major books yet, not surprising given Cody Fajardo's unknown status, but if you have access to some of the less mainstream books, Riders minus three and a half is what I'm seeing at the moment. 
for your injury report. The Riders don't have a whole lot of injuries, but the few they do have, uh, they're not insignificant. Obviously, Fajardo got his bell rung last week, and I can't imagine Craig Dickinson wants to take any chances with a concussion. But it is an encouraging sign that he's at least been a participant in practice this week, even in a limited role. And based on the coach's presser on Wednesday, it sounds cautiously optimistic that Fajardo will be good to go as the starter on Friday night. Receiver Jordan Williams-Lambert has been absent this week for what is being termed non-football reasons. No other details are available there. And defensive backs Mike Edom and Ed Ganey are both banged up. Doesn't look likely that Ganey's going to play, and it sounds like Edom is officially out now. For the Argos, they continue to have a whole bunch of guys on the sixth game, but those guys have been out all year, and, and next man up has played out pretty well for them so far. And in terms of recent injuries, return man Daniel Braverman was moved to the one-game injured list. Receiver Ricky Collins has been limited in practice this week. And defensive back Cresden Butler has been a full participant. It looks like he might be coming off the sixth game early, but no confirmation of that yet. In other notes, former Eskimos and Riders head coach Chris Jones has joined the Argos coaching staff as a defensive assistant. I'm curious to see how big of a role he'll play. Probably nothing notable this week, but something to watch for in the coming weeks as he brings a sterling reputation as a defensive coach back to Canada after some time in the States with the Cleveland Browns organization. Uh, and He was coaching some high school football back at his alma mater when uh, a phone call came. Though it feels like we've already talked plenty of quarterback injuries, but there's no avoiding this one. If Fajardo either can't go or is less than 100%, it's going to downgrade this Saskatchewan offense, though I wouldn't say you'd feel terrible about Isaac Harker leading your offense. We haven't seen a ton of game reps from him yet, but he came to the CFL for the 2019 season, so he's, he's spent three calendar years in this organization and didn't look out of place last week in relief, even if he wasn't able to get the offense moving all that well. As... Uh, as big a concern as any right now for the riders, I think is finding execution uh, and they're finding consistency in their execution and play calling and getting practically shut out in the second half in three out of five games is cause for concern here is defenses seem to have adjusted well to what this offense is throwing at them. Going from facing Winnipeg's D-line twice to Toronto's defensive line, as you might expect, that's a, a favorable adjustment in and of itself. Uh, but, you know, this defense can be run at, and, and Jason Moss seemed to gravitate back towards the, the run game last last week after a, a pair of games where William Powell wasn't really a factor. So I, I'd look for that to continue, especially in a situation where you really can't afford to get your quarterback killed, regardless of who is back there. Um, honestly, I think the biggest worry from a Saskatchewan perspective, though, is, is not even necessarily on the offensive side of the ball. Um I wouldn't say Nick Arbuckle is setting the world on fire for Toronto yet, but he's been pretty solid back there since taking over for McLeod Bethel-Thompson. And uh, six games into this season, he's the only quarterback in the league that consistently moved down the field against the Blue Bombers' defense. You know, you'd, you'd like to see those interceptions cleaned up. To, to my eye, though, this guy looks every bit the part of a starting quarterback so far, and, and I'd rate his performance uh, right up there in line with what we saw from Dane Evans in, in 2019, the first few games after he took over as a starter. So with, with Mike Edom and, and Ed Ganey both probably going to be out for this one, there, there's some holes back there in the Riders' secondary, and they got burned repeatedly last week. You know, we know this group likes to gamble for interceptions, and there is value in that, but they've allowed an opponent explosive pass rate of greater than 10% so far, which may not sound huge, but that's actually just about the worst in the league. And 
that's with the advantage of a game against uh, Ottawa on that data set where I, you know, I don't think Ottawa, you know, tried more than one or two passes more than 20 yards downfield. Ryan Dinwiddie, first year head coach in Toronto. He's quietly done a pretty nice job with this group in my estimation. And the Argos have shown decent ability to make adjustments over the course of a football game. Saskatchewan has been pretty good against the run at a 55% defensive success rate, but Outside of uh, the Labor Day game where the Ticats just totally stuffed the Argos, uh, you know, Toronto's established the run consistently. So you've, you've got a little bit of strength versus strength in that department. You know, I do think Toronto should be able to put up 20 plus points in this game. And, and whether or not that's enough for a victory is going to come down to uh, elimination of turnovers and avoidance of big negative plays on special teams. It's probably a stretch to call this game a must-win for Saskatchewan, considering they're still in second place right now. But they'll play six of their final eight games on the road after this one, so I think there's probably going to be an underlying sense of urgency here from them. You know, that said, with Fajardo's uh, uncertain health, I think minus three and a half is a pretty big ask of this group, considering the injuries on defense. Um, I'm actually just now seeing that interior lineman Garrett Marino is going to be missing too. That's another defensive starter down. We we know Micah Johnson isn't 100% right now, even if he's still in the lineup. So yeah, catching this number on the right side of that, the, the key number of three is is important. So it is, you know, if you're leaning towards the Argonauts uh, and, and have access to that number, I'd probably make that move uh, sooner rather than later. When it opens at the main shops, I, I don't think that hook is still going to be there necessarily. You're probably looking at Saskatchewan minus three if, if Fajardo uh, looks like he's going to play. If we did get word that he was out, uh, this probably ends up closer to a pick him possibly. Uh, <clears throat> you know, your total is also going to see a downward adjustment of two or three points. Um, you know, I, I suspect uh, Fajardo probably is going to go in this game. Um, so it's, it's tough to lean one way or the other on this total. Something in the 44 area would be my guess. So whether there's a, a play to be made is uh, going to depend on how close or, you know, we're hopefully for our purposes, how far away the actual uh, total we get to bet on uh, is from, from that speculative number. All right, we'll pause things here to give me a chance to get this episode out with some decent lead time before the Friday games commence. For a best bet, there's nothing I like quite enough from these first two games to declare a best bet from either of them, especially with all the quarterback uncertainty. So in the interest of you being able to grab the, the number uh, while it's still available, BC plus four in Montreal on Saturday night, uh, that will be my best bet for this week. I'll be breaking that game down in part two of the podcast, but that episode might not be dropping in time to, to still grab that number should the market agree with my assessment and then move it towards three. So we'll strike now while the best number is still available. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to another episode of Third Down Gamble, and we will see you soon in part two.